0: go ahead and pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are present in this place with us. We thank you that you are worthy of being exalted, that you are worthy of our praise. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come today, that in the singing together in the hearing of your word, that we would be made more like Jesus. And I just ask these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, It's so good to be with you again. Um, I'm Stephanie Tennant, Kyle's wife, uh, the Discipleship Director here at Regen. So glad to be with those of you who are in the room and those of you who are joining us online. And today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at the first uh, seven verses. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and, and turn in them to Acts chapter 6. And we're going we're to go ahead and jump in. So the first verse says, But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers, They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicorin, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread, the number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. Um, We're going to go ahead and and look at this passage, and um, I spent this week working on this passage. First of all, I do want to just Just want to kind of give God the glory this morning. Um, Yesterday morning I woke up and I had like a pretty bad crick in my neck, and I woke up this morning and I had a worse crick in my neck. And I thought, you know, it's interesting when God asks us to do things, um, because I really felt like the Lord had kind of led me to preach this sermon. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. So I came today kind of thinking like, okay, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to move my head very well. And in our time of prayer before, uh, Joey prayed for me, and I feel like the Lord really used that. I'm not 100%, but I can I can move. So I'm just really. Giving God the glory this morning for that. So I just we want to keep kind of holding that up when the Father does those things. We want to celebrate those. So I just want to celebrate the healing that I feel like I've experienced um, this morning. But as we jump into this passage, um, I want to look back over the past few months. We've been looking at Acts and we've seen amazing things. We've seen the Holy Spirit fall, we've seen miracles done we've seen people healed, there's been multiple amazing things that happened. In the previous chapter, we saw um, the apostles were, were broken out of jail by an angel and told to go ahead and to continue to preach, and so they do that, and the church is growing and expanding. And we turn into Acts chapter 6, and I almost feel like it's a little bit of a like, womp, womp, right? Because in, in the passage I just read, it says, the believers rapidly multiplied, and there were rumblings of discontent. Now, when you're a ministry leader, the last thing that you want to hear is rumblings of discontent, because it's unsettling, (laughs) and it's concerning, and it can even be frustrating. And so it feels like it's a distraction from ministry, or it can feel like maybe people just aren't getting on board, they're not doing what we're asking them to do. But the first thing I want to look at in this passage is that people mean problems, that when we are around people, we're going to have problems. In fact, more people, more problems, most likely. So as we look at this, we're seeing God powerfully at work in the new church, and yet we're still having problems. There's still conflict, there's still disagreement, there's still complaining and grumbling. And so the apostles are faced with the challenge of helping these new Jewish believers work together. And actually, what it didn't say as much in the translation that I read, but that we're going to look at a little more closely, is that these believers were all Jews. And actually the distinctive between them was one set was Hebrew speaking or Aramaic speaking and one set was Greek speaking. So they weren't even really that different. Um, It really came down to language and maybe a little bit of worship style. And so the apostles are faced with the challenge of helping these new Jewish believers work together and live together. And I think that this passage is important because without them addressing this issue, I'm not sure that the church would have continued on. And the more I studied this, the more this passage really felt pivotal to me, like some other passages that we've looked at in the life of the church. While these early Christians maybe didn't initially handle the conflict in the most productive way by going directly to the apostles and saying, hey, we have a problem, um, they did, we don't see them, we also don't see them doing something that we are kind of familiar with today. How many of you are familiar with the term ghosting? Okay, there's maybe like a, yeah, ghosting, right? And for those of you who don't know what ghosting is, ghosting is what people of a certain generation generally do to people that they just don't want to talk to anymore. So if you send a text to someone and they don't respond, and it's not because they forgot to respond or because they were busy, but because they just didn't want to continue relationship with you, that's what we would call ghosting. I think for other generations, we probably would call it like cutting off. So the idea that, you know what, I don't want to be in a relationship with this person anymore. They've kind of done one thing too many, and so we're done right? So we don't see the early church doing that. We don't see them ghosting. We don't see them cutting off. So even though they were complaining and grumbling, they were still staying engaged in relationship. And that's one of the big desires that one of the first things that kind of came to me was like, even here amongst us, we're going to have conflict. We're going to hurt each other's feelings. We're going to sin against each other. If that hasn't happened to you within the spiritual family, then it's just a matter of when, not if. And what we really wanna be working toward is being the type of family that stays engaged, that comes back and says, hey, I'm hurt, or hey, I think that maybe you sinned against me. And, And we want to be the kind of spiritual family that encourages each other to lean in, to listen to one another, and to say, let's leave room for forgiveness. And let's leave room for the Holy Spirit to do things that we thought he could never do. Because see, when we go into conflict, we go into difficult conversations, we already think we know what's gonna happen, right? Like we go into the conversation thinking, I'm gonna say this, and then they're gonna say that, and then we're gonna walk out and we're gonna be worse off than where we started. And sometimes that happens. That is, that is true, we think that because sometimes that's been our experience. But when we engage in the process, leaving room for the Holy Spirit to work and engage in it prayerfully, that might not be what happens. You know, it might be the time that we step in and say, I'm going to go in with an open mind prayerfully, I'm going to say what I feel like the Holy Spirit's leading me to say, I'm going to listen to what they have to say back to me, and then I'm going to let God do what he's going to do here. I'm not going to predetermine for him what's going to happen. And so we really want to be the type of community that leaves room for forgiveness and restoration of relationship and doesn't become the kind of community that sends angry texts or just disengages altogether. So that's the first thing. People mean problems. We want to lean into the conversation. Secondly, in this passage, we see that discrimination is divisive. Let's look a little closer at what's happening here. So at this time in history, it was common for Jewish widows to move back to Jerusalem. And if when they arrived in Jerusalem, it had taken all of their resources to get there, they were entirely dependent on the kindness of the church to even eat. So this is not just like, she got more pickles than I did or something. This is literally coming down to life and death for people. The early church took seriously God's command to care for the poor, the widows, and the orphans. We see this in James 1.27. It says, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So here they are being obedient, they're being faithful, they're feeding the widows in their community, but this dispute arises between these two groups of... Div- Jews. So this isn't even like, you know, these people are Jewish, but they're not really practicing, whereas these people are. It really is two groups of devout Jews that speak a different language and maybe had some different practices in how they worshiped. And so the problem here is one of otherness. They are other than we are right? They speak a different language, they worship differently. And the preference was being shown to the Hebraic widows or those who spoke a Semitic language, probably Aramaic, which was the language that Jesus spoke. And um, as we look at this, um, we see time after time in the Gospels and, and more so in Acts where Jesus is breaking down the walls between Jews and Gentiles, between different people groups, between different tribes and different nations. And so, this little microcosm of these two Jewish groups learning to get along is just the first step because the next thing is going to be Jesus, like the Apostle Paul and Peter, having to work it out between Jews and Gentiles, right? So right now we're in this tiny little group trying to work it out between the two differences. And I think the thing that's interesting about the other is that we can really struggle to love them and at our worst we can fear them, right? We fear what we don't know. And we often fear because we're afraid of what we're going to lose. Because if they gain something, I might be losing something in the process. And um, we don't want that fear of failure or that fear of the unknown to keep us from engaging at all. And we don't want to believe the lie of a scarcity mentality. That God has limited resources and so therefore what they get, I don't get. It's easy to see how the early church ended up here frustrated that the Greek widows were not getting enough food because of their preference, or at least that the preference was being shown to the Aramaic-speaking Jews. And here's kind of the background of what was happening between these two groups. So the Aramaic-speaking Jews had settled in Palestine and stayed there the whole time. And so for kind of like a Harry Potter reference, they were the purebloods. They had never left. They were faithful. They were faithful um, to their ethnicity. They were faithful to the language, and they were faithful to their religion and had stayed very pure and were probably a little bit proud about that. Whereas the Greek-speaking Jews, whether by force or choice, had been carted off or moved to other parts of the world were speaking different languages because Greek was the most common language at the time, so that's why they were Greek-speaking, and then had chosen to come back to, to Jerusalem. So there was suspicion that perhaps they weren't, that they were mudbloods, for Harry Potter reference, that they weren't as pure and as, you know, consistent and, and faithful as the Aramaic-speaking Jews. And so it really comes down to the suspicion of the other manifesting itself in how the church was living its life. And this difference in language worship styles And location of worship, because they had different temples, threatened to break apart this fledgling movement called the early church, right? Because if they couldn't get along with each other, they were not going to be able to spread the gospel and to keep moving forward. Even today, our natural and honestly sin-driven desire can be for everyone in the church to look and act like us. We can struggle with those who are older or younger, those who like different music than us, those who look different than us, or those who vote differently than us. Some of my favorite Facebook posts most recently have been those talking about the fact that we need to be kind because after the election we're all still gonna be friends and neighbors and relatives, hopefully, (laughs) Lord willing. Um, Because I think that we forget in these moments that this is temporary. Our election has consequences, definitely. Don't hear me say that and definitely go vote. That's not what I'm saying. But even the results of our election and the consequences of that, either good or bad, Is temporary, whereas the kingdom of heaven is what is forever. And so the people that are around us who know Jesus, who love him, who are following him, those are the people that we're going to be with in heaven forever, not the people that voted the same as us or live in the same country as us. And so as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how America in the past has sometimes been referred to as a melting pot. And I know we don't really use that anymore for some good reasons which I want to talk about because I think that the idea of a melting pot is that we lose our identity and we take on a corporate identity, right? Like, it's kind of, in a, it's supposed to be a good way of saying like everyone is equal so we're all just kind of melted down and, and look the same or act the same. And besides the fact that that doesn't allow for ethnic and cultural differences that I think God has created us with, I think the bigger issue is that's really great for national identity and national pride but as a believer i have an issue with that because i'm not supposed to look like every other american i'm supposed to look like jesus and so when we live into that i think a lie of saying i need to kind of have this corporate national identity we're not living into who jesus has called us to be and the reality is that heaven will be full will not just be full of a certain color of skinned people. It will not just be full of Americans. It will not just be full of one political party or another. Heaven will be full of every person created on the face of the earth. For those people who have named Jesus as Lord and committed their life to him, those are the people that are gonna be in heaven. And actually what God calls us to do is not to melt ourselves down and become like other people. He calls us to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. And those will be the people that will be in heaven, the people that have died to themselves and are following Jesus. And it says in uh, Revelation 7, 9 through 10, this is part of the reason why we just sang that last song, um, this passage just paints such a powerful picture. It says, after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. If we're serious about asking the Father to bring heaven to earth, as Jesus taught us to do in the Lord's Prayer, then we need to pursue a culture that embraces the other and invites them in. And not for the purpose of them looking more like us, but so that we can together learn to become more like Jesus. We've looked at how people bring problems, we've looked at how discrimination can be divisive, and now I want to look at how the apostles taught us that diversity is desirable. Uh, The apostles give us such a valuable example here of how to handle conflict and concern within the body of Christ. Uh, Not only do they take this possible division seriously and address it, um, they take the actual issue of the widow seriously. So there's another way that I've kind of seen people try to make other people become like them especially within the church and that it kind of goes something like this Um, I feel like God has called me to minister to people in their 30s who are passionate about parasailing and drinking Pepsi and I think that you should be too if you really love Jesus right that's ridiculous like we can all laugh at that but that's because honestly I couldn't think of an issue that I don't know that someone feels passionately about within our church and I didn't want to like make anyone feel awkward But the truth is, we can tend to think like, God gave me this passion, and I love Jesus a lot, and so if I really love Jesus and this is how he's called me to work it out, then I think he's probably called you to work this out too in the same way, right? And we're trying to kind of get everyone to be on the same team, doing the same kind of ministry. And the problem with that is that we're trying to pull others into something that God has called us to do instead of empowering them into what God has called them to do. And the reality is, within a church, we have a lot of things that need to get done. The good news is, we have a lot of gifted people to do those things. And that doesn't even begin to address the people outside who we haven't even begun to reach yet. Right? So, And that's, I think, what is just really beautiful about this passage. So it comes to the apostles' attention that, Houston, we've got problems. We've got division. We've got hurt. We've got issues. right? The Greek-speaking widows are not being as treated as well as the Aramaic-speaking widows, and the apostles say something um, pretty profound here, which I'm not sure would go over super well today. They say, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And even my first thought is a little like, ooh, excuse me, okay, well, good for you. Um, because we would all say it's important, right? These women, it's, this isn't, again, just, like, giving them, like, some extra food. This is actually their sustenance for living. So this is important. But I think the reason we sometimes feel that way is that we've seen ministry leaders or pastors be above things, right? Like, they're the ones always kind of bossing people around. And I always tell Kyle, I'm like, listen, if the people can move chairs, we can move chairs, right? Like, God has called us all to do some of those things. But in this moment, I think what's actually happening is the apostles are saying, "Listen, we were gifted and called to pray and to teach the, the gospel, and God is blessing that. He's bringing people into faith. And so this isn't an issue of um, them doing, not wanting to do things that are beneath them. This is good news because they're not shirking their responsibility, but they're living into their God-given gifting. And." The apostles aren't designating tasks based on worthiness or importance, they're designating tasks on gifting and responsibility. And further down in the passage in verse 4, the apostles essentially say, we've set this thing, things up this way so that we can continue to devote our time to prayer and preaching the gospel. I also like how they solve this problem because they don't do what I would almost call as like earthly wisdom, what we would do. They would say, yeah, we would maybe say like, well, you know, there's that new guy who's been coming, and I can't tell if he's really engaged, so let's ask him because if he has to show up every day to feed the widows, then he's probably really going to like become part of our community, right? And they also don't say, um, let's, you know, so-and-so, Joseph, he works in food distribution, so I think if we asked him, he would be really good at making it efficient and making sure that we got everybody fed in a timely manner. That's not at all what they say. Instead, the apostles um, come to everyone, and it says um, in verse 3, So, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. So they give the church as a body the responsibility for choosing these seven men. Because, you know, that's the other thing. Sometimes from the top down, we want to say, like, well, these are the people that I think would do a good job. So let's pick them and put them in charge. And instead, the apostles say, okay, you've got a problem. Let's work together to solve it. Who are the seven men, not just that are available, not just that are willing, not just a warm body, but who are the seven men that are full of wisdom and walk in the Spirit? Because this is a big deal. We want to make sure that we're handling it well. And this is, you know, where things really surprise me. I made an assumption as I was reading this passage and actually had like written part of the sermon and Kyle came up and I, he had sent me commentaries. I hadn't read the email clearly. Anyway, I went back and looked at the commentaries and what I thought had happened was not at all what had happened. See, I assumed if this were me, I would have actually picked eight men and I would have done four from the Hebrew speaking crowd and four from the Greek speaking crowd and then make sure that everyone gets fair billing, right? We, we want representation. So we would kind of be like, okay, let's represent all the factions, make sure that there's equality, make sure there's fairness. And what actually happened is these men weren't chosen to represent the views of the different factions. In fact, I can only describe as what we see happening here as repenting and believing that God is going to provide for them. Because all seven men were from the Greek-speaking Jewish community. And so I can't know this for sure, but to me it feels like the church as a whole said... Listen, we've got a problem. We're, we're treating people differently based on their language and kind of their background. Um, you know, the apostles have asked us to select them. I think repentance in this moment says let's choose the weak to lead the strong. Let's ask these seven men who are we see in them, they're walking in the spirit, they're full of godly wisdom, let's ask them to lead us. And, and I think that the amount, we cannot underestimate the amount of humility that this takes. Right, because if I'm honest, I'm thinking, like let's say that it's my, um, you know, I, I love, because if she was my family member, I'd be caring for her. But let's say there's a woman I really love who's um, an Aramaic-speaking widow. My first thought would be, well, what, what if these guys try and kind of take revenge on her and they start kind of shorting those widows because of the way that they've been treated, right? Like that's our natural temptation is to think, well, I'm probably gonna lose something if we make sure that all those Greek-speaking widows are fed. And so, to me, this huge step takes so much humility, faith, and courage. They invite the weak to lead the strong, and to trust that through them, God is going to provide their needs, and they won't take revenge or get even. To trust that if they gain something, the others won't lose. And this is just such a beautiful picture of how God desires us to act as his body. Um, I hope that you can see in this passage for yourself what a pivotal moment this was for the church. Because as we look at this, we see, first of all, we see conflict and we see the apostles handling that well. They don't dismiss it out of hand, they don't ignore it. Um, they also don't run to fix it themselves. And this is the other thing I was thinking about. If the apostles had dropped the preaching and teaching, and said you know what this is really important I've got to take care of this right now I'm going to jump in we'll be here every day we'll start feeding the widows we're going to make sure this is taken care of the gospel would not have continued forward because they would have been so concerned with the in that they would have lost their out the going and the the seeing other people coming to Christ and so um, instead we see how God works even in this conflict to bring about the expansion of his kingdom so you know often we see conflict and we say that's really bad I want to avoid it But as they lean in, we see in verse seven, it says, So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and, this is so interesting to me, many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So not only do we just see other people coming to Christ, but we see specifically Jewish priests. And I have to wonder, we don't know why, we don't know exactly, but as I was kind of thinking about this and praying about this, the thing that kept coming to my mind was, these Jewish groups, the Greek speaking and the Aramaic speaking, had been at odds for hundreds of years. There had been tension, there had been suspicion, there had been frustration, and all of a sudden their leaders are watching them not just get along, but be spiritual family together. They're not just all of a sudden, they're not just sharing a worship space, they're not like, you know, like the, um, Hebrew-speaking church wasn't just giving more money to the Greek-speaking church. Instead, they were submitting themselves to one another and letting these people that are so different from them lead them. And so I really believe that God blessed them, not just with a lot of other people coming to Christ, but specifically with these priests who had watched these people fight and bicker and and be so suspicious of each other for hundreds of years to see something happening. And I have to think that they wanted to know this Jesus who could break down these walls that they had never seen broken down before. And so um, I want to kind of ask three questions this morning of us. And the first is, Who among our spiritual family do you need to forgive or re-engage in relationship with? You know, it doesn't take long. Some of you have been here for, or known each other for years and years and years. Some of you have just known each other shortly. It doesn't take long sometimes for there to be breaks in relationship and for there to be conflict. And so I just want to encourage you. It might seem like nothing good is going to come out of that conversation. It might feel like it's not worthwhile. But I want to invite you to prayerfully step into those conversations and to leave room for the Holy Spirit to do what the Father wants in those conversations and not assume you know what will happen. We're called to faithfully love one another and then leave the results of the the conversation in the hands of the Father. My second question is who is the other that God is calling you to? You know, I grew up in South Dakota. We had a, a totally different other than I feel like we have here in Northeast Ohio. I was joking with Kyle this week that right now my other is people that have super terrifyingly scary lifelike Halloween decorations out because I'm like (laughs) driving as fast as I can by them so my toddler doesn't see them and ask questions. Thank you Jesus he just sees owls everywhere and tells me about owls so I'm just taking that as the Lord (laughs) protecting him. Um, But we can joke about that but the reality is some of you have neighbors who have signs in their yards that make you really angry. And the reality is that you might have a coworker that looks very different than you or acts very different than you, and you're not sure you really want to engage with them, even though you've sensed maybe the Father kind of inviting you to, to engage in a relationship with them. And you might also have family members who you're just so hurt and frustrated by that you're just done. And you know, maybe it starts in a place of prayer. That's okay. Just starting it with prayer, asking the Father to show you what you need to deal with in your own heart, and then asking the Father to show you the love he has for them, and ask him what steps he'd like you to take in engaging in relationship with them. And finally, we talked, you know, there at the end of the passage about this gifting, about the apostles, and then these men that um, were wise, and, you know, they laid their, the apostles laid their hands on them and prayed for these deacons, which is a word sometimes used, and sent them to, to, do this food distribution and God uses that so mightily you may be sitting here thinking I don't know what God has gifted me to do like that's great stuff and you can talk about that but I don't really know what you're even asking of me well the good news is that you can stay tuned because we're going to have some information coming on ways that in like different groups and ways you can engage in figuring out your giftedness and how God wants to use you But right now, we want to be a culture that doesn't pressure people to engage in the ways that we think they should engage, but we wanna be a culture that prayerfully invites people to step into the gifting that they sense God is leading them in. And you know, that's something that's challenging um, for Kyle and I, quite honestly. When we first started Regen, it was kind of like, we will take anyone who has a pulse who is willing to do anything, please. Like, beg, borrow, steal, anything. And we did a lot of it ourselves. But as the body has been growing, God has just been so faithful. I mean, I, to be honest, I am amazed that we have two children's classrooms happening in the back, and that I um, have people that have stepped up and said, I really feel passionate about kids ministry, and this is something I really want to do. Like, talk about blessing my socks off. Seriously. Um, And there have been people who have been praying for this for years, including Kyle and I, and who... And even as it was happening, I really was praying, like, Father, like, who are the other people that you want to invite along on that team? Who are the people that you want to serve in that way? And that takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of trust. And it's hard sometimes because sometimes we whiff or sometimes it just doesn't go well. But we want to be the kind of community that prayerfully asks the Lord, who do you have for this role? And how can we empower them and invest in them so that they can do it well and so it can be life-giving to them and to the people they're doing ministry to? And most importantly, and I think the area where we're still really trying to grow, is who have you called to go outside of our body to bring more people in? Who are the people that you've called that really have a heart for the lost, which we all need to be praying for a heart for the lost? but especially who are the people that maybe that's just really their gifting and how can we come alongside and pray for them as they seek to build relationships and as they seek to um, bring others to know Christ. And Like I said, if you're not sure um, what, those, what you feel like your gifting is over the next few months, we'll have opportunities. We're going to have podcasts and some groups and some things that are really going to dive in and look at how has God gifted you and how can you come alongside the work he's doing to expand the gospel. So let's go ahead and we'll close in prayer and then Kyle's going to come up and, and do our response time. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and good God. Father, I thank you for how you gift us, how you've made us each uniquely um, with gifts and talents, and yet you ask us to lay down everything for you and for the sake of your gospel. So Jesus, I pray that we would be people that are willing to die to ourselves, to our preferences, to our suspicions. And that, Father, we would be people who are quick to live into the diversity that you've invited us to, to bring heaven to earth even now. And so we ask these things in your name. Amen.
1: Part of the reason that Steph preached this sermon this week was even to kind of offer a demonstration of multiple people using their giftings um, and pressing into that. So thanks, babe, for stepping out in faith on that. One of the other comments I just thought I would make is when we went about choosing our oversight team, we used the same process that the book of Acts used to determine the deacons. And so if you remember back over the summer, I said, I sent you an email and said, who in our body do you think fits these roles? And what was really unique, that can't be grammatically true, but what was unique about it was that the same names kept coming to the top. And uh So it wasn't Kyle going out and finding yes men, far from it. Um, And I think the people that serve on that team would be a little offended to be considered yes men. Uh, In fact, uh, it was our whole body recognizing gifts and graces for a ministry among us in a really, actually pretty cool way. But I I just want to invite us to respond in a moment. We want to be wise builders. We want to hear what God is doing and we want to uh, hear what God's saying and we want to step out in faith about it. And I think one of my, just to kind of echo Steph's questions, um, who in our spiritual family do you need to forgive or re-engage with? There just might be somebody you might not be living an outright unforgiveness toward them, but you've just chosen to disengage. Where is that person that you're called to lean in with? Uh, and then that other idea is um, who is the other to whom God is calling you to go? And I think in this, in this season, the way that we deal with otherness is I'm totally happy to be in relationship with that person if they would just do this, this, or this, right? And I engaged in a conversation with somebody this week about like, why do so many Christians have so many different political views and why are we fighting about all of that? And uh, I guess to me, it's not only are we called to go to the other, but my question is, what are you willing to sacrifice to move toward them? So repentance in this area isn't saying, I'm totally fine to be in relations with those people if they would just. It's saying, here's what I'm going to lay down so I can take a step toward them. What is God calling you to take a, repent of so you can press in toward the other? So let's uh, give you a minute to pray about that, and then I'll lead us into communion. Scripture tells us that it is good for us to pray for kings and people in high places and, in, and all of those who are in authority so that it may go well for us. And so obeying that today, Father, we lift up our country before you. And we confess today our fear and our anxiety and invite you to remind us of who you are, that you are the same yesterday and today and forever, and so that you will be the same on Tuesday as you are on Wednesday and next Sunday and beyond. God, we pray that we would recognize your purposes as they come to fruition in this election, whatever they are, and that our eyes would not be on earthly things that are temporary, but that our eyes would be on you, Jesus, before the foundations of the world. You have been king over all. You did not need to be elected. You did not need to run. But before the foundations of the world by the will of the father and the pleasure of the holy spirit you are lord and so as citizens who are not of this world we turn our eyes to you we pray for peace we pray for order we pray for justice to flow like a river and so we give you our hearts and our fear and our pride and our correctness and invite you to show yourself bigger. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand, and we're just going to sing the bridge and the chorus of that song together as a, as a blessing. your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. We'll see you next week. I love you. Grace and peace.